Hi, this is Bob Murphy, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the special July 4th episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Nick Gosling, and today we are joined once again by Dr. Jamin Hubner. Jamin was actually our first ever guest here on the Libertarian Christian Podcast, and today he joins us as essentially our co-host to walk us through Romans 13 and the surrounding issues. So anybody who's been a libertarian Christian for any length of time has probably encountered the objection, well, what about Romans 13? Or sometimes it's posed in the even more uh, combative sense of, haven't you read Romans 13? Or go read Romans 13 and then come back and talk to me. Well, there's a lot more to it than that, and that's what we're going to be diving into Today, what, what does Romans 13 really say, and where does it fit into the context of Romans as a whole, and how does that fit into New Testament theology and the biblical canon as a whole? Jamin is going to uh, take us through a discussion on these issues. So, Jamin, in American evangelicalism, there's, there's just a lot of bad theology that has been inculcated, it seems, for, for so long. On this issue, and, and and maybe it's unfair to even say American evangelicalism. I mean, it might be much mm. much broader than that. Uh, wh- what do you think? Well, yeah, it, it's uh, there are plenty of different segments of the Bible that have been used and misused and abused and uh, trampled on or misunderstood. And this this entire section and really the chapter Romans thirteen has been one of those, and uh, it has been used. Uh, in different contexts to basically legitimize anything that the government does. And on a surface reading of the text, it's not uh, difficult to see why that is. Uh, But of course, on the surface reading of any text, whether it's poetry or a song or something, uh, there's plenty of room for confusion. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we we don't want to restrict it to American evangelicals, uh, but there is a certain aura that uh, surrounds uh, a contemporary Western American, uh, uh, you might say, evangelical context where uh, there's sort of a, a, a biblicist approach where it's, you know, people have it on their bumper stickers. Uh, God said, said it, so that settles it, or something like that. Um, we've seen different things like that. And, you know, okay, if we run with that, where, do, where is that going to go? Uh, life is meaningless, Ecclesiastes 1.1. 1, 1. God said it, therefore that settles it, you know what I mean? Uh, so, and this is uh, a particularly interesting chapter because of its historical context being written to Christians in Rome, and Rome is... Uh, particular for a number of reasons, and why the issues are addressed here and not in 
the rest of uh, Paul's letters in, in something else. And of course, a, a basic historical context would tell us why. Why is the issues of government coming up? Why are taxes coming up? This really isn't addressed in the rest of the Pauline corpus. Uh, and why does eating food sacrificed to idols and a lot of this sexual morality addressed to the people in Corinth? Well, because these things are an issue at Corinth, and Rome is the capital of the empire. It's where the empire, emperor uh, lived. And uh, so, that, you know, some of these basic issues can be unfolded just by looking at the basic context. But yeah, there is a lot of baggage about uh, hermeneutics and interpreting things. And, you know, certain people, certain Christians feel uh, like like this is actually a betrayal, you know, like, well, if we have to study this, if we actually have to have some knowledge of the first century, you know, that kind of takes the, I don't know, the excitement away from it, or we're just, you know, the mercy of academics and their people are pulling tricks before our eyes. And, um, and it's not like that doesn't happen. It does. But, um, what's interesting is when you actually read, you know, some of the popular responses and, and like you said, the things on the street, you, get, you gave some great examples, like, go read this chapter. Haven't you read? Um, this really is a, a very simplistic uh, and, and almost an anti-intellectual and uh, anti-biblical study type of approach. So I guess that's what I kind of feel uh, and think regarding that. And so, uh, in short, we naturally have a tendency to read the Bible from the perspective of 20th and 21st century uh, Western people, as opposed to reading the New Testament from a first century perspective, uh, which is what we should be doing. And after we do that, then we come with our questions today. And so that's kind of what I hope hope to accomplish in this program so far. As we're as we're looking at the text, right? I mean, it it people seem to forget that the chapter verse divisions in the text are, are artificial. Those aren't actually natively in the original texts. They were added uh, mostly in the Middle Ages. And so when we think, oh, chapter 13, I mean, this that that's not how it would have landed on the original audience. They they read it as as a letter, right? The, the Pauline epistles were letters. They were read in one sitting from beginning to end. And so if we're going to look at Romans 13, we have to at, at least look at Romans 12, but really, I mean, even that's not enough. We need to look at the, the entire letter. But when, when, we, when we look at the, the, the flow of the argument, the, the first part of Romans is, is Paul laying out his theological argument. The second part of Romans is his practical application of that theology. And Romans 12 is all about uh, – loving your enemy and overcoming evil with good and not taking vengeance, but deferring to, to, to God's judgment. And it is in that context that Paul then pivots into Romans 13. So, mm -hmm. well, that's true. And that, that general literary context is very important. And, um, how many lines we draw between the, first sections of the letter to the second, of course, are debated and um, in which lines those are. Um, but yeah, that's that's right. It is the the um, precise numberings and chapters are are superficial. The ordering is not, of course, and, and Paul meant things uh, to be read in the order that he wrote them. And so it does flow. It, it is it is a risk uh, 
uh, a taking of a risk by just sort of isolating one chapter, especially at the end of this particular letter. You're exactly right. That's going to definitely uh, definitely lead to some confusion. So <clears throat> before I, I go any further, I just want to kind of summarize what I think is happening in this text because I, I hate it when <laughs> when people, uh, you know, they, they make you, li- maybe it's good podcasting techniques, but they, they make you listen to the end to kind of know what you think and what your opinion is. But I'm not going to do that, um, at least in this case. I kind of want to present what I think is happening and then start to dig a little deeper, a little deeper as time goes on. So what I think is happening in Romans 13 is that Paul is doing everything he can to basically keep the Christians in Rome alive. Now, there's a lot of spare gunpowder laying around at this time and at this place, and there's a long history of revolutionary behavior at this place and time. And that also includes, of course, this guy named Jesus. So, this means doing, in in this context, almost whatever is necessary to keep things peaceful. And this is something actually Paul concludes himself in verse 7. Respect those who you're supposed to respect. Give honor to those who you should give honor to. Basically, play the game. Lay low, at least for you and at least for now. That's, that's the card that's being played. Now, you might say, well, this is, this is so unchristian and, and bizarre for Paul to be saying something like this for so many reasons. Uh, not least of which is because Jesus was just crucified by the Romans for sedition against the state, and because God has judged tyrants and bad leaders and authorities ever since Pharaoh in the Exodus. That story is through Israel. Well, exactly. That's, that's what we need to see here. Paul is going to have to provide some kind of theological argument to make this workable, even if it seems inconsistent with Israelite history, even if it seems inconsistent with his other teachings, Jewish tradition, even if it sounds really radical, and even if it's really generic and capable of being misunderstood by millions of Christians for 2,000 years, which, interestingly, it basically has. But this is what Paul does. Now, how well this worked, I guess, is a matter of historical debate. It's not clear how much uh, you know how how much time this bought uh, some of the Christians under the gun uh, in Rome in this period, and of course the irony is that Paul himself probably gets killed in Rome, and there's there's other ironies too. I mean, Paul was a Roman citizen, and he used uh, used to persecute Christians himself, and used his citizenship uh, to avoid being flogged, and, and and on and on. But the point is, this is probably what Paul uh, is doing. So, you know, at at this point, I I think the best thing to do is to do a quick reading and a commentary on the actual text, if that's okay with you, Nick. Absolutely. Let's dive right in. Okay. So, I got the NIV here. I'm just going to read through this and make a few passing remarks, and then we'll dig a little bit deeper into it. So, verse one, let everyone be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Okay, so here's theological argument. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. 
Now, this is quite an argument coming from a Jew in the first century. Uh, what about uh, Pharaoh? What about oppressive kings and judges in Old Testament Israel? I mean, almost all of Israel's history is back and forth between obedience and disobedience, depending on the different situation, the different rulers at play. And so his, uh, you know, it's 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 hard not to just read this and be like, well, what is he saying? Like, you know. So his argument is a bit broad and generic. And uh, it relates to his specific goal, which is to stall off a revolution uh, in Rome and keep things safe, basically. Remember, Nero uh, is the emperor and is known for being particularly anti-Christian. Okay, so continuing on, verse 3 and 4. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. Now, this is really interesting because fear is mentioned twice. Phobos, right? It's, uh, some renderings have terror, some have fear, some have be afraid, different ways of rendering it. But it's, it's repeated here. And why is this? Well, there's this guy named Nero. He was the emperor. He lived in Rome. That was his stomping grounds, as it were. And the guy, I mean, he's known for tying you know, animal carcasses on the backs of Christians in his own vicinity and then releasing wild animals to shred them apart. Like, like that's, that's we, we'd call that terrorism. Like, the purpose is to instill fear. And you can bet that the Christians in Rome felt that. And they definitely felt it. And I mean, I, I don't want to impute a, 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 an exact image, you know, that's, that's imprinted on the minds of the readers of this letter, but you can imagine what it might be. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. So here's a theological argument. Okay, the state, the tool of coercion is not purely arbitrary, right? And, and libertarianism, the problem is the initiation of coercion, the initiation of force, not just force. And uh, so we, this question came up when I was in Toronto speaking at a conference on this stuff. Um, you know, is there any place for aggression management or law enforcement? Well, yes, even an anarcho-capitalist would say as much. Um, the problem is the initiation of force, right? And so I think generally, that's kind of the general idea is that to have justice, to enforce contracts, property rights, you got to have a, uh, you know, a, a tool of doing that. That's what the state should be about. Now, I realize it's, it's often not, but... I think that's the general idea here is the sword is that that uh, the force element or the coercion element. So, therefore, verse 5, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes for the authorities or God's servants who give their full time to governing. I think a lot of people... Uh, reading that would 
in Rome would say, well, that's not all they do, <laughs> just as we would today. I, I mean, there's no doubt that Paul knows uh, that there is wasteful spending, that there's, uh, you know, a lot of this money is going to sacrifices for the emperor, for heaven's sakes, on his birthday. It's not like they don't know that. So you have to read between the lines here. You have to read it in its context. You can't just pull it out and say, okay, yeah, this is statism 101. Mm, it is, doesn't work like that. In the next first actually really unfolds that. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. So, like total subordination. Well, this fits the context. It's a very desperate situation. Uh, I would be very scared living in Rome at this time. And survival of the church, which is very, very early, and it's very infantile, uh, infant stages here, is very vulnerable. And I think this is wise counsel, given the context. So, and then, of course, you know, that it's also interesting in, in, uh, in verse 8, which it, there's a, another subsection, I guess, after that. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Like a good uh, Jew and Christian, avoiding debt is a good idea. The borrower is slave to the lender. Uh, that goes back to uh, the Proverbs and its basic financial wisdom. Avoid it if you can. Uh, and again, what is what is happening here? Well, in the business realm, avoid risk. Mitigate risk. Uh, don't take chances. I don't know precisely uh, more about the, the business economic situation in Rome at this time. If there are, I don't want to say predatory lend lender practices, that's such a modern term. But, um, but in any case, the point is, try not to put yourself in a really uh, ambiguous, problematic situation. That's, that's the tone here, okay? These little verses in between, the big ones that we're so accustomed to hearing and memorizing, are the ones that really give us a sense for what's happening. He then concludes the chapter, we don't have to read all of it, we don't have time to unfold it, but uh, talks about love, repeats some of the, the commandments, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. This is the overall tone again. So, what do you think about that, Nick? Does that sort of unfold some of it, uh, get a better feel for what Paul is doing through what he's saying? Absolutely. I mean, but like you just mentioned, he closes out this argument by coming back to love. And, and when we go back to Romans 12, which is where we started this, he's talking about love. And Romans 13 is is in between those things. And so it's it, it starts with love, it ends with love. And Really, the the flow of the argument in that first portion of chapter thirteen, like 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 you just laid out, it I, I would say it's it's this: God is sovereign. The state, whatever it may be doing, is not outside of His control. The kingdom of God is upon us, and the mission of the church is to be the people of God. 
don't rock the boat by bringing down the wrath of the state on top of the church by being antagonistic. And if they happen it, to persecute you, I mean, which which does happen, has happened, let, let it be for righteousness's sake, not because you're being an antagonist. And so it's really about prudence. Would you agree right. with that? Right. Well, well, and he, well, and he, he, Paul already said, be peaceful insofar as it's possible to be peaceful with everyone. Right. So this, this is, this is a perfect example of that. And so that, and so also, as you mentioned, that the theological argument is that the state is not arbitrary. Leaders are not arbitrary. This type of authority structure is not completely arbitrary. Um, there is a purpose of justice behind it. I mean, that's at least supposed to be. Um, and then secondly, uh, God is in control over all things. And that's, you know, we hear that all the time, especially in a Protestant or Reformed context. God is sovereign, God is sovereign. Well, it means something a lot more, more significant if you were a Christian living in Rome in the first century, where uh, it doesn't seem like God is very sovereign. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of justice going on. And uh, so, we also have to have to keep that in mind too. So, well, anyway, that's, I, I kind of provided a little bit of a summary, provided some immediate contextual issues. Uh, I'm kind of doing this all in reverse order. Now, if we zoom out further, we have to deal with, and this is just as important, maybe not as exciting for a lot of people to listen to, but it's it's just as important for understanding what's happening, and that's the redemptive historical and the larger theological context within the history of Israel and the Old Testament and Judaism. And so there's just a couple of things I want to I want to sketch out here, or at least mention that we we have to keep in mind when we're interpreting this chapter. The first is the basically the failure of state authority in the history of Israel. Uh, that is mentioned or a, a topic in First Samuel, I believe it's chapter eight, I think, or eleven, eight. I think it's chapter eight, um, where. Israel says, we want a king, we want a king, we want to be like the others, have this uh, great army and fly our F-22s over the Assyrians. <clears throat> and God says, no, you don't want to do that. It's not a good idea. You have me as king. And they say, no, no, we want a king. So, all right, you'll have a king. It's going to be a disaster. You're going to end up in oppression. It's not going to be any good. And what do you know? That's what happens. Okay. Then you have... Second Chronicles 9 through 11, and the, dis the disintegration of the Israelite monarchy. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of Christians, they're aware of the splitting of the kingdom of Israel. From David to Solomon, and then all of a sudden, boom, there's the creation of Judah and Israel. Judah to the south, Davidic, uh, and Israel to the north. Israel falls in 722, then in 587, Judah falls, and then the exile begins. But why did this happen? Well, we say, well, this is God's judgment. Yeah, right. But what, what are the more practical economic means? It's because Solomon, his relatively peaceful reign turned into an oppressive bureaucracy. High taxes and slave labor. 
this is actually what happened was there was a secession that took place over economic oppression. And you read about this in Second Chronicles 9 through 11. The working class overthrows the taskmasters, the people who were in charge of the quotas for how much labor uh, they were supposed to do, you know, given to them by King Solomon. And the secession happens. The kingdom is split. And that's a big deal in the history of Israel. That's something that reverberates in the communal memory of the people. And, you know, it's kind of like the Great Depression almost uh, in American history. My, you know, I just learned that my, uh, I think it was my great-grandparents lost their farm to the Great Depression. And I didn't even know that was like, you know, in, in my family story. And it's in a lot of people's family stories, but we're not really aware of it until we talk about it. So these things shapes the identity of Israel. It shapes their understanding of, uh, of, of ruling authorities and of kings. And Solomon is kind of a mixed bag. And that's one of the reasons that the kingdom split was because of differing opinions regarding the legitimacy of the administration of Solomon. Well, anyway, so, so that happens. And then you have a really uh, crazy period after that, after the, the kingdom's fall and in the exile, and this continual shifting of regimes that rule over Israel. And then you have the Hasmonean dynasty and a lot of political plays going on uh, through a series of, well, what are they? They're, they call themselves kings or uh, chief priests. Uh, uh, you know, there's different titles they give themselves, and they even start... Um, minting coins with themselves on it, and it becomes a really uh, a bit of a problem. So you have the whole Hasmonean dynasty, and that goes all the way down to, to Herod, actually, in the first century. And that creates a lot, of, a lot of problems. The Sadducees, of course, were one branch that tried to make partners with the state and with the government. And, uh, you know, we don't see a lot of it in the New Testament but we do see a little bit in, in, we don't see a lot of positive things about the Sadducees from Jesus and others. But so you have that going on. And then, but, but also in Israel's history is you have during that period, during the prophets is looking forward to the Messiah. And this is a kingdom. Okay. So this is language they're familiar with. And it's this kingdom of God is not, an establishment that's parallel to the state, necessarily, but ultimately is rendering violence unnecessary through time. In a way, the church absorbs the world, as some of the language that theologians give, as the kingdom of God comes. Like this, again, like a mustard seed is one of the, the parables or, or metaphors and illustrations that Jesus gives. Something starts really, really small, and then it just grows and grows and grows over, over years. The kingdom of God is like this. And so, how, how, how is this communicated in the first century? Well, through the common language, the civic language, and the titles that are used in that time. So, uh, Christians are called citizens. Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul says in, uh, I believe it's Philippians. And... Some of the biggest ones, the most controversial, are that Jesus is called Lord, which is a title given to the emperor. Son of God, a title the Senate gave to the emperor just a generation before Jesus was born. 
That's why this language is used. The emperor, Octavius in this case, provided the perfect backdrop for the incarnation. And so, then we get to the incarnation. We get to Jesus himself. And interestingly, uh, he, he does not simply obey. He does not simply get along with the governing authorities, although at sometimes it was peaceful. He talked with the centurion, uh, worked with this guy, didn't, you know, uh, cause a lot of trouble there. In fact, he healed someone uh, the centurion knew, and, and that was a big deal. But was ultimately tried, charged, as we understand it, with sedition or insurrection. They're similar, but not exactly the same ideas. And killed. And uh, hopefully, in the eyes of the Roman governor, this was the end of this uh, potential revolutionary figure. And so, something there that is overlooked a lot is that taxation, which is addressed in Romans 13, and that tends to be the issue uh, that gets pressed a lot in the chapter. Taxation comes up three times in the life of Christ, right? Matthew 17, 22, Luke 23. Everybody knows about the, the encounter with the coin, you know, render unto Caesar what Caesar's gods and the gods. But then there's those other two issues. There's other two stories where uh, Jesus finds a coin in the mouth of a fish to pay this temple tax. And then there's a text that, strangely, I have, I've never talked with anybody um, who kind of quoted Romans 13 in favor of just gen generic government power that was even aware that this text was in their Bible. And that's Luke 23, 2, which is the trial of Jesus, so-called. And this is what it reads. They began to accuse him, saying, we found this man perverting our nation, forbidding us to pay taxes to the emperor, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king, unquote. What, what tends to happen is this is immediately dismissed. Oh, this, this is a lie. You know, Jesus was innocent of all charges. Well, we have to at least ask the question, and this is a question that doesn't come up a lot, Nick, but it needs to come up. Why is taxes even an issue? Why does it even come up multiple times? Well, the reason it comes up is because taxation is theft, A. B, taxes in the first century went to sacrifices, pagan sacrifices on multiple occasions, in the structure of the empire. And C, paying money is, is an indication of where your allegiance lies. As a faithful Jew, you just, you can't do that. You can't, you can't just pay up. You can't just, this is a line at this point that was seriously problematic. And that's why it kept coming up. Okay, so that's really important. A second factor to think about also is Jesus' responses in every single case. He never once just comes out and says, your property is the property of the state. Give it to them. They're going to build roads with it or whatever. That doesn't happen. It's always ambiguous. Why is it ambiguous? If Jesus was this Democrat, Republican of the 20th and 21st century of modern Western democracy, where, where do we find this? 
This isn't the Jesus we read about. There's all kinds of problems here. There's ambiguity, there's doubt, there's questioning. And no wonder in Luke's account, he records and says, this person forbids, this is a direct quote, forbids us to pay taxes to the emperor. Now, I don't care how, how, how wrong they may have been, if they are. I mean, there's something, something happened, okay? So Jesus behaved in a way that led to this kind of understanding. When these observations are made, uh, some people think, well, I'm just erecting this wall between Paul and Jesus. Well, no, we just have to read each in their own context and understand what's, what's happening. And so, um, in, in short, uh, there is uh, some, some difference and, uh, you know, a, a different context between what Jesus is dealing with there and what Paul is dealing with in his context. Now, there's similarities, of course. There's still the Roman Empire. There's still this system of oppressive taxes, immorality uh, in, in and outside the state, and on and on. So, in Romans, it just so happens that not only was Nero a oppressive emperor, and specifically anti-Christian, Notoriously so. That doesn't mean necessarily an empire-wide persecution. It doesn't have to be to be an oppressive tyrant. This is a a common mistake uh, made in in scholarship. Is that well, you know, if it wasn't an emperor empire-wide persecution, if it wasn't the systematic persecution, well, then maybe it really wasn't that of you know influential and a big deal. No, people can be oppressive in a thousand different ways. They can do it without even initiating violence. I mean, you. There's there's verbal oppression. There's all kinds of psychological manipulation. I mean, there's a hundred different ways in which a tyrant can oppress people. It doesn't have to be a large scale murdering of people or something like that. So, we, I don't want us to miss that Nero was notoriously bad and was anti-Christian. That's legitimate to say. It also happens to be the case that there was new tax laws instigated by Nero uh, in the 60s when Romans was written. It makes perfect sense, therefore, that this would be the time when, if if there's any time, when a Christian author in the first century would, would say, okay, you need to pay up. Like, this, this would be the time. And what do you know? It is. It's in Romans. It's, we don't find this type of stuff elsewhere. In fact, we find a lot of critiques of this in the life of Christ and throughout uh, the early church. So this is a situation where uh, the particular regime, the administration, the particular policies that are in place, the particular geographic region, all of these things leads us into Romans 13. We say, okay, Now I understand why this is here, not there, why this is now, not some other time, why it's to these Christians in this situation. So that's a really important, uh, you know, basic information about the kind of, but you wouldn't really know that just reading it. This, this is, you know, this, this is some things, these are things that uh, require a little bit of study and background information and you know, uh, 
like, like reading Tacitus, for example, will will mention these new tax laws that are oppressive. It's not like the Christians are the only ones complaining. Uh, and in fact, uh, I was learning the other day that uh, in 17, so uh, Jesus was a teenager, the Jews campaigned against the Roman government for a tax deduction, or a reduction, <laughs> not deduction. And... Uh, Okay, I mean, this this is interesting to think that Jesus, as a teenager, was surrounded by these types of political debates. His parents, his friends are embroiled, just like in uh, very similar uh, debates we have around election season. You know, who are you voting for? What, what do you think about this law? Uh, that's all. That's all going down, and this is one of the reasons why Jesus speaks so much in terms of of finances because of the oppressive economic situation, tenants, landlords, savings, uh, harvest, grain, um, interest, debt, redemption. This is all economic language. Is it because Jesus was obsessed with money? No. A lot of Christian counselors are going to say, well, it's, you know, Jesus talked about money more than anything else. So we have to that's really important for us. Well, yeah, it's important, but he talked about it more than anybody else because it was an issue of the time. And it was the vocabulary and the images and the situation that really spoke to people. That's why all these different parables and these teachings had to do with these things. So I'm just going to pause right there before we kind of jump into, you know, what does this mean today? How do we so, so-called apply Romans 13 or this this larger uh, theology regarding Christians in the state. Yeah, well, along those lines, I, I mean, you you had mentioned a little bit about the intertestamental period after the close of the Old Testament canon and the time of of Christ in the New. Um, you know, one of the one of the the, the key uh, historical episodes from there was the the Maccabees, and so you have Judas Maccabeus and the Maccabees, and they these are revolutionaries who overthrow Israel's oppressors. And then you fast forward to the time of the New Testament and the life of Christ, and there's multiple different uh, parties in Judaism. You'd mentioned the Sadducees. There's, we all know the Pharisees. There's the Essenes. There was also the Zealots. And the Zealots were those who wanted a violent uh, resistance against, against Rome. They wanted to kind of revive that, that, glory of the Maccabees. In fact, it's, I think it's very plausible that uh, Judas Iscariot was a, a named after Judas Maccabeus, and he, he, like many, were looking for a military savior. And you'd mentioned around the time you know Romans was written, well, shortly thereafter, AD 70, right, the, the Jews, in fact, did revolt against Rome right. and were annihilated by Titus Andronicus. So, and for and for and that was predicted by Jesus, right? And this is even part of, you know, some judgment. Absolutely, and I mean, I I, I think if anything, I mean that that has to be taken into account here with, with what Paul is talking about. He he did not want, and Jesus didn't want, Paul didn't want, the church to be caught up in in that kind of a mistake. And so as we as we shift over here to talk about. Practical application. Uh, I, I, I mean that that strikes me as the most significant practical point that we can draw yeah. out of Romans thirteen is 
don't try to overthrow the government. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, trust God. Uh, sometimes that means you you submit to oppression. It doesn't mean you necessarily just get walked all over without doing anything about it. But don't try to raise an army and overthrow the government. And unfortunately, there's been a lot of Christians uh, who who are, are like part of this militia movement. And they think, you know, we're going to fight back against Uncle Sam's tyranny. And I mean, that's just, <laughs> I mean, that's just not yeah. going to work. I mean, you know, or, or yeah. we're going to be a tax resistor and I'm not going to pay and I'm going to go to court and I'm going to show why I don't have to pay taxes. Yeah. Not a smart idea, practically. Yeah. yeah. No, the, I agree a thousand percent. I mean, there's, there's, there's nothing in in the in the scriptures that legitimize an armed revolt. Um, there's there's peaceful resistance. There's not being a part of the system. There's critiquing the system. That's one thing. Uh, armed, you know, revolution is another. And I think uh, both Jesus and Paul and others lay that to rest particularly Jesus, who, when his fellow zealots, and as a, some anachronism regarding the term zealot, whether it was truly appropriate to apply to Peter and, and others, but we'll use it for now, like Peter and others, when they pull out their sword and they want to use uh, force and, and violence, physical violence, Jesus immediately says, put your sword away. Uh, you know, and, and when... When he's walking through this uh, this village and they don't accept him, the disciples say, do we want to call fire down from heaven? Is this something we should do? And Jesus basically shakes his head. He's embarrassed by these, <laughs> these people who are so on edge. And that's, that's the thing we miss, I think, without getting the New Testament context in, in its historical, cultural context, is, is just how edgy some people were uh, to use violence. And, and of course, Peter does slices off the guy's ear when Jesus is being arrested. So it's not like this didn't happen, but you're exactly right. Jesus is providing an alternative to uh, uh, the, the, the Maccabees and that whole tradition of guerrilla warfare, of just taking it over by force and the zealots of his time. And really, for all ages, for all people whether armies, regimes, as you said, militia groups or whatever, people who want to use and initiate force, take things back through physical violence. It's just, it's not a good idea. And yes, uh, 70 AD, the Jewish-Roman War, the collapse of the temple, the burning of Jerusalem. uh, And then it continues, right, until the 120s. and uh, just just getting squashed. So, I think I think you're right. That's that's a big, immediate and pretty obvious one that we can get from this whole whole topic. The other thing, as we go to, you know, continue to unfold some of this, we have to ask in hermeneutics. You know, what what is the same in our situation that was the same in the first century, and what is different between the two? This is a really, really important and good practice when the subject of application or hermeneutics and, and ethics comes to, comes to bear. Well, the same things are the nature of taxation, which is just, uh, you know, uh, slave labor 2.0 or 2.1 or whatever, part-time. It's, it's 
Uh, that's what it is. In the evolution of oppression and nations, that's what it is. The nature of the state hasn't changed. And there's also some interesting similarities, of course, between the Roman Empire and the uh, United States Empire. And, uh, of course, we get a lot of our things and terms like Senate from, you know, these ancient institutions and uh, various military structures and traditions. We actually get a lot of that from. It didn't just come out of, you know, 1776 and we just invented new ways of living. It goes all the way back. That's why it's called Western civilization. It's just kind of this whole thing. So there's a lot of the things that are the same and similar. Now, what's different? Well, our president doesn't technically claim uh, to be divine or son of God. Uh, and most U.S. presidents or prime ministers don't. There are some uh, leaders in other countries that basically do require, uh, you know, a worship of a kind. And uh, and our our view is sort of divine, more or less. Um, our tax money do not necessarily go to pagan sacrifices. They do go to unjust wars. They do go, although I don't, I don't really know if they go to abortion. I, I've asked different people and they're like, well, yeah, well, no. But, um, and this, by the way, this was a big issue years ago with the so-called Manhattan Declaration and Chuck Colson. And um, it was kind of like a bunch of Christians got together and said, you know, we're not going to support uh, state-funded abortion. And we're going to withhold our taxes, even if it's necessary. So that's an interesting case study uh, because it's it's the borderline of the Christian conscience. It's an image of at least where the church is today in this situation, where some of us think we're going to put our foot down and say, "All right, we're we've we've compromised enough. We can't stomp on our own conscience." So that kind of leaves us with a lot of questions. And uh, one question is, at what point does submitting to government authority infringe on our conscience? At what point is paying taxes or you know, pledging allegiance to the republic infringe on our conscience? Thankfully, uh, when I have not stood up and not put my hand over my heart and not cried during the singing of the national anthem, national anthem and all these things, I haven't gotten taken away. I haven't gotten put away in a cell or, or fined. Whether those days are coming, I don't know. But at least for now, we have some degree of choice uh, to not participate in some of these uh, uh, this so-called civil religion, statism, whatever you want to call it. But I'm not really answering what line that is, and that's, that's a, a tough question to answer. But for Christian libertarians... Uh, the provisional answer is, well, it's prudent, as you said, Nick, and as Norm had put it in other podcasts and publications, it's prudent to pay taxes uh, to avoid being locked up. That's why we pay them. Um, it's not just because, well, Romans 13 tells us. It's not that simple. We don't just do that because, you know, Paul is looking in the 21st century and saying, yes, you must do this. Now, there, that's not to say there's no import from the chapter. I think we've already covered some of that uh, pretty well 
generally regarding uh, violence and the the theological argument Paul makes regarding the nature of the state. Um, but in any case, we do uh, participate in this particular thing and do other acts of civil obedience and follow other laws uh, because it's prudent. This kind of approach that uh, I'm embodying or trying to follow here in in interpreting the text and applying it is very similar to you know, Richard Hayes and the moral vision of the New Testament, although I haven't pro- provided particular pictures and metaphors necessarily. Um, but also Kevin Van Hooser, who's a systematic theologian, he wrote a really good book called uh, The Drama of Doctrine. And there's a lot of great things there, but one thing that sort of stuck out was uh, his concept of of concrete universals instead of abstract universals. And that's what scripture provides, or concrete universals. Like, in this situation, this is what is right or wrong, as opposed to the Bible is a dead text, it's a corpse, we extract propositions and facts from it, bag them up in baggies and take a sharpie and mark them and put them in the right slot and store them. And when we need them, we, we look them up. You know, that's how some people think of systematic theology, you know, and then we just follow it or whatever. Instead of that uh, type of thing, scripture is is better than that because it gives us incarnated wisdom and knowledge. It gives us embodied, uh, concrete, you know, expressions about what love is, like the crucifixion, like, like what is love? It's not just being a nice person. It's, it's, we look to Christ, we look to the crucifixion, we look to, you know, what greater love is this than a person who gives his life down for his, his friends, okay? So, here's a concrete expression. So, um, that's important to keep in mind when we look towards so-called applying uh, these texts or these paragraphs. If we're just looking for an abstract universal, that's not necessarily wrong, but you know, what's what's better is looking at the concrete expression of what's there and then going into our context to see what that might look like. So, um, sad to say, the, the majority of what we did today, and I realize we didn't do a lot of the deprogramming and a lot of the, the assum- assumptions and, and covering a lot of these different presuppositional grounds, but... Uh, what we have sort of done, even just in 45 minutes, uh, is really more than what most commentators, public commentators, I don't mean necess- the academic ones necessarily, it's more than what kind of mainstream uh, religious political talk is ever going to do, right? Um, you know, trying to connect the situation of Jesus and taxes and Paul, pulling out Israel's history and looking at the, the implications for that, the concept of the kingdom of God, taxation under Nero, all these things, uh, the nature of the state, history of taxation in Israel, uh, the splitting of the kingdoms, things we talked about, uh, particulars like Emperor uh, uh, Octavius and the concept of, of Caesar as Lord, uh, you know, why Paul doesn't address the issue of state authority in other letters, all these different things. They're very rarely uh, come up in the discussion, but they are the necessary preconditions for really getting a handle on what the text is saying. Uh, I had a couple little blog exchanges with 
uh, some people on the internet, and uh, you, you don't have these discussions. You don't have discussions of context. We don't have discussions about why the issues come up in the places that they do. So I just want listeners to be aware of that. Uh, proof texting doesn't work uh, for good reasons. And uh, simplistic biblicism and uh, God said it, that settles it, bumper stickers, that's, that's not good theology. It's not going to produce good theology. It's not good study. So uh, hopefully we've you know, unlocked some of these venues for deeper understanding about what's happening and how we can understand that uh, today in our seats in life and the, 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 our life situation as the, the German phrase is. So, I don't know. It could be a failure, but <laughs> we tried, you know, and uh, it's it's uh, at least always good to get an alternative voice because we both know that this is an alternative voice and this is not, you know, even a typical approach in the conclusions we draw as well. I think that's a good place to end the discussion for today. I, I hope it was very beneficial to our listeners, you know, as as Jamin was saying, there's certainly uh, much more that that could have been said, uh, and and much more study that that indeed can be done by the individual who's looking to to go a little deeper into this. But at the very least, we hope that you know if you're if you're not a a libertarian Christian yet, or maybe you're you're libertarian leaning, but you're not sure about this, or or you're open to thinking about other ways of of looking at this text, then than what's kind of been mainstream in the last 100, 200 years or so of, of Christian theology. Uh, ho- hopefully this, this provided some, some context uh, and, and some motivation to study a little more and maybe consider the way we, we render hermeneutic judgments and how it's not just as simple as, as pulling out a text, but it's really weaving it in with the entire narrative of Scripture and the whole of theology and and asking complex questions, uh, and and that is our, our our blessed privilege as those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the body of Christ, is to be able to to wrestle with these things and and grow in our walk with the Lord in in that process. So, uh, Jamin, thank you very much for being here, and thank you all for listening. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can email podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at, at Twitter at LCI Official. And if you'd like to support us, you may do so at libertarianchristians.com slash donate. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. Libertarian Christians.